Hi, everyone. I'm Tom Pritchard, and joining me today on the Marriage Champions podcast is Dennis Rainey. Dennis and his wife, Barbara, co-founded with two other couples, Family Life, a marriage ministry back in 1976. It subsequently touched millions of lives in over 110 countries. In December 2017, Dennis stepped aside as president and CEO, handing over the reins to David and Meg Robbins. During those 40 years, Dennis and Barbara did over 6,250 radio programs, authored or co-authored over 35 books or Bible studies. They've been married since 1972. They have six married children and 27 grandchildren. Dennis, it's an honor to have you join me today. It's my privilege. Great to be with you. Well, let's start out. Uh, you know, you've written a lot of books. You've done a lot of radio interviews, hundreds of uh, Weekend to Remember marriage uh, retreats. Uh, did you always think you'd get into the marriage area? Was that something you'd always dreamed of doing or did it kind of fall in your lap? Not at all. Not at all. When I was in, uh, I think, uh, the third grade, I drew a picture of what I thought I'd be doing. And I, it, it probably is more crude than my memory allows me to think about it. But it was a picture of a man in a pulpit with the Bible teaching. And um, I thought I might be a pastor, although that was just an early thought just around my conversion. Um, really, I, I spent a lot of time in the spiritual uh, tulis, uh, wandering and uh uh, really not 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 following Christ and, and his call for my life. And when he finally got my attention, he uh, he got all of me. And uh, I'll never forget, there was a, 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 a guy who was the chaplain for the Washington Redskins. His name was Tom Skinner. Mm -hmm. And Tom Skinner, he came to our church in Fayetteville, where I was a student at the University of Arkansas, and he began and ended each of five messages with a quote that was exactly, exactly where I was coming from spiritually. Uh, I was from the tribe of the Doubting Thomases, and I had both feet firmly planted in midair. I didn't know what I believed. I just had a lot of questions. And uh, anyway, when he came to town and pre preached, those that quote he gave at the beginning and end was like a spiritual two before right between the eyes for me. It's like, that's it. So here's the quote. He said, I spent a long time trying to come to grips with my doubts. When suddenly I realized I'd better come to grips with what I believe. I have since moved from the agony of questions that I still can't answer to the reality of answers that I cannot escape. And it's a great relief. And uh, Jesus called me to follow him. And I've been trying to do that ever since. Haven't done it perfectly. When I was on my radio program, one of the first things I did was told a story about how I got angry with Barbara, my wife. And Bob Lapine stopped me and he said, wait a second, uh, this is national radio. Are you sure you want to tell a story about yourself where you failed? And I looked him in the eye and I said, you know, the Bible is full of stories of people who failed and still honored God with their lives. If I can't share my failures, I really don't have much to, 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 to share because I think some of my best lessons have come out of my short, 
shortfalls and shortcomings. So anyway, um, that's kind of been the anchor of, of following Christ. I met Barbara at the University of Arkansas. We never dated there. We both went our separate ways. She went to the the, the collegiate ministry of camp, what was then Campus Crusade for Christ. I went to the high school ministry and um, we kept in touch, but didn't have a dating relationship. And honestly, Tom, it was there in the high school ministry that I saw the breakdown of the family occurring in the, in the uh, early, uh, early 70s. I graduated from college. I thought everybody came from a family like I had. And it wasn't perfect either, but um, uh, I, you know, it was kind of a leave it to beaver family. My dad was always there. My mom loved me. So my dad and, and uh, I just thought everybody came from the family like that. But my eyes were opened in Dallas, Texas, as we started the high school ministry there. Uh, we had over 300 kids show up at this physician's home. He came home from the hospital. 300 kids were hanging out over the balconies in this house it was at the corner of Crooked and Straight Lane. True story. And we would preach Christ to those high school students. But wherever I looked and whatever I saw, it was just in glaring lights. It's the family. It's the family. And it's marriage. All the way back upstream, if you want to impact uh, the family, a teenager, a child, you got to start with a married couple. And uh, so... Uh, when we got married, it didn't take us long to leave the high school ministry and the campus ministry. Ultimately, went to Dallas Theological Seminary and started what became uh, Family Life in 1976 as a marriage preparation conference to help couples uh, really get um, the, the biblical blueprints for building a marriage. Because every home has, has a blueprint. May not be much of one, may be the wrong one, mm -hmm. but the Bible is the best blueprint I have come across in my 75 years of life. And, and basically what happened in 1976, we started equipping these engaged couples or those contemplating engagement with the blueprints. We would look them in the eye and we'd say, you know, here's the problem. You're going to get married, you two, and she's got a set of blueprints and he's got a set of blueprints. But the problem is they're not the same blueprints. We'd like to give you the best blueprints that have ever been authored in all of human history from the best-selling book, the Bible. And uh, we begin to piece that together over a period of uh, really four decades. Our message has not changed much, but um, we trained uh, we we trained tens of thousands of engaged couples. But they started coming back and asked if they could come back to the conference after they were married. Tom and and we said, "No, you're 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 married now." That was an engaged conference. We didn't make this for married people. We made it for you know for engaged people starting out. You know the old statement: the customer is always right. Well, they beat the doors down. They finally came in and come in. They did what started out 100% pre-married, ended up being about 93% married folks and 7 to 10% um, singles who were engaged, contemplating marriage. 
who wanted to get those blueprints. And uh, uh, about 5 million of them been trained over, over the next uh, 30 plus years and still going. I don't, I don't know if you know of anything that was around in 1976, a conference, it, Billy Graham was, that wasn't a conference, that was a stadium event, but I don't, I don't think I know of any conferences right now that existed in 76 that still exist today and are growing. There'll be 70 to 75,000 people go through the, the conference that uh, family life puts on all around the country. And they're not coming to hear a person, uh, somebody who's got a name, they're coming to hear uh, uh, the, blue, the blueprints, the biblical blueprints. And that to me was the great delight that all across the country, I could be on a date with Barbara here where we live in Little Rock, Arkansas, and there would be a half a dozen, uh, six, eight uh, conferences that weekend with other speakers doing it. And we trained them and, and uh, it was a great privilege, just a great uh, privilege. And I, I think it, there's no question today that uh, uh, marriage is central to what's happening in our culture. And I, I had no idea, Tom, when we started this, that the little ministry we started here in Little Rock, Arkansas would be ground zero and in the crosshairs of the spiritual battle for the for a nation, a church, a family. Because as the marriage goes, so goes the family. As the family goes, so goes the church. As the church goes, so goes the nation. And... Um, uh, I don't think we could have given our lives to a more strategic ministry than what we did. And in fact, we're still doing it. We've got a couple of couple of websites that Barbara and I give leadership to, um, and we're writing for it every week. And now we're inviting our son, who's a marriage and, and family therapist uh, near Nashville. He's writing, and he just wrote a couple of articles uh, that almost 300,000 people have already read, each of them. One of them is uh, what wives need to know about their husband's pornographic use, pornography. Mm -hmm. And the other one that he wrote is what husbands need to know about their own use of pornography. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's just all kinds of issues around marriage and family that need to be addressed from the biblical blueprints. I keep going back to them because it's the best stuff I've found. And there's a reason because it was authored by the creator of the universe. He slung a billion galaxies into outer space, but he also created man and woman in marriage for a lifetime. What a privilege. Yeah. Well, you've, you've been an observer of the culture and marriage for several decades. What is the state of marriage in the U.S. today? Have things changed? Since you started with family life in '76, uh, have the issues changed, or are they same, or some more prominent? What's what's your observation? Of what's going on? Single people are waiting longer to get married. It's almost 30 years of age for men, and 27 and a half, almost 28 for women. Uh, they're delaying child uh, birth when they get when they do get married. Um, that's one of the biggest ones right there. Marriage has fallen out of favor in our in our nation. Uh, uh, many single people, this is an astounding, this, this is to the shame of us who are in 
the Christian community, the church. But the most preferred form of marriage preparation is not our conference. It's living together. Mm. Over 60% of all couples who get married live together first. Take a test drive. And um, I get it. I understand. You know, when, when you take the guardrails off of the road, you know, you're going to wander out into the into the pastor. And uh, I just happen to believe that God put some guardrails there when he said it's not good for man to be alone. He's going to make a wife, a, a helper suitable for him. And uh, the two shall leave their father and mother and shall cleave to one another and shall become one flesh. And that's how you get the beginning, the headwaters of the marriage relationship. And uh, it's a covenant. That'd be the second thing I'd say. Not only has marriage fallen out of favor and people are getting married later, but the the covenant means nothing. Uh, this right here, my wedding band, used to be a sacred symbol of the marriage covenant. Today, it is the most frequently found item in suitcases of people traveling to Las Vegas. Yeah. And one of the things we did with our six kids when our first daughter uh, was married, uh, we asked her permission if we could give her a wedding gift, her and Michael, her husband, uh, that would be what they promised each other on their wedding day. So we got their vows and uh, we had a piece of paper. Tom, I didn't know you could buy a piece of paper this expensive, but it was a big, big piece of pure Egyptian cotton paper. I think we paid 50 bucks for that, that paper. And we hired a calligrapher to write, to write out their promise they were making as husband and wife to each other. Mm -hmm. And then at the base of it, there was a place for them to, to sign it. Where Ashley signed and Michael signed during the ceremony. And then we invited the congregation after the service to come by and witness this covenant and affix their names to that covenant where almost a hundred did. And Tom, I'll never forget this. And this is back to answering your question. How has the culture changed today? I was standing back there at the table where the covenant was, where the pen, we had this special pen we want everybody to sign their name with. Permanent ink, okay? They'd come by and, and it, one person came by and says, man, now look and see what they've gone and done. And, and another person said, man, they're really serious about this, aren't they? And I thought that is a commentary right there on where the drift has occurred. The church, the church of Jesus Christ is the keeper, the guardian, the, the protector of the marriage covenant. And if we don't do a good job of protecting it, according to what the book says, well, we've seen what's happened. From the headwaters of marriage, you've got all kinds of pollution downstream as people uh, 
separate, get divorced. And I understand, I understand why they get divorced. We've been doing conferences, you know, trained millions of people. I understand I'm selfish too. Uh, but um, I, I think loyalty and going the distance and denying self, not that people were all that much into self-denial, uh, five decades ago, but but I would say I would say they had a greater respect, a greater respect for the authority of scripture and for the pastor. And uh, that's too long of an answer for you, but there's two or three things I think that have happened as a result of the culture. And so as a result, we've we've got a generation that their feet, they're unbalanced, they're they're off kilter. Uh, because the homes they they came from split in two, and when you got a kid, I actually had a, a young lady we interviewed on a radio program who described having her parents' divorce be like two piece one piece of land that broke apart, and that her feet were on those two different lands, her mother and her dad's land. Uh, I think it's horribly confusing to a young person. And thinking that a, a little person, a grade school child, could figure it out emotionally. They don't have any idea how it impacted them. So anyway, we live in a culture of divorce. The breakdown of the family is, is a tragedy. But I think uh, there's hope because the church can seize the high ground. And once again, uh, regain the sacred nature of the marriage covenant and uh, uphold it and encourage people to keep it. Mm -hmm. Well, let, let's talk about the state of marriage in the church. You've kind of alluded to the problems we're seeing, and obviously they'll spill over into the church. I came across a Barna survey a few years ago, found that 85% of churches spend zero ministry dollars on marriage. Why do you think that is? Um, why is it not a priority? You know, where, you, where you spend your money is kind of a indicative of, of a priority maybe. Why don't you think the church has a greater sense of priority there, you think? Well, if you really want to know, I think it's spiritual blindness. And I think the enemy of our souls attacked the first marriage in the Garden of Eden. And he deceived them. And he's still doing that today. And so I think, I think churches... have not realized the power of the word of God and the teaching on the scripture to get two people who are yielding to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, surrendered to him, obedient to the scripture and, and trained them in those, those blueprints. That frankly, Tom, that's why we got started in 1976. Howard Hendricks was my mentor and became a very, very good friend. He was asked to speak at the U.S. Congress on the Family in 1975. Dr. J. Allen Peterson uh, hosted that conference, and um, they had over a thousand people there. And in that conference, Dr. Hendricks, who was professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, made this statement. He said, in the city of Dallas, it takes three weeks of intensive training to become a garbage collector. But about all you got to do to get married is to stand before the justice of the peace 
and grunt and you're in. And he said, this ought not to be so. And there was a single woman seated in the audience who was on Campus Crusade for Christ staff. Her name's Nay Bailey. She heard that and she went back to the leadership of crew and said, let's do something for our engaged people. I would say Howard Hendricks in the, in the late 60s, 70s, and 80s was a prophet in our nation that we didn't listen to. When he died about a decade ago, a little over a decade ago, I felt like the flags on the courthouses and, and churches and schools ought to fly at half-mast because he, he was calling the nation back to the biblical, biblical blueprints. And so uh, I think I think what's got to happen, uh, I think the church has got, got to get back to the basics and your statement about you spend your money on what's value. I think a second reason why it's not preached and taught is because a lot of pastors, marriages, and families are a train wreck. And here's what I'd say about that. You don't have to have a perfect marriage and family to teach on it. I know. I did it for almost 48, still doing it, 50 years. We just celebrated our golden anniversary. Mm -hmm. And um, you don't have to have a perfect one, but you got to get up out of your failures and face forward, not against each other, and not be standing up in a foxhole duking it out. Instead, be in the spiritual battle against a common enemy and mentoring the next generation, coaching them, teaching them, cheering them on, not letting them just drift away from each other and get an easy divorce, but calling them back to that most sacred commitment two people ever made. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a businessman this past weekend, interestingly, uh, Saturday night in, in uh, just south of Austin, Texas. And he said, what do you do? He told me what he'd, he'd done. He had a fascinating business, very successful business guy. He said, what do you do? And I said, well, I build homes. I build for the number one home builder. I work for the number one home builder in the world. Really? I said, yeah, we build marriages and families. And we help train people in the three most important commitments in life, God, spouse, and family, children. And we ended up talking for 45 minutes fascinating discussion. And um, this guy was eager to hear more. I, I, I really was sorry I had to get in the car and drive 580 miles yesterday to get, to get back home here for this interview. I could have done it from there, but uh, I wish I had more time with him because I would like to have introduced him to the creator of marriage, Jesus Christ, and the redeemer of marriages, the redeemer of broken people. God's power has always worked best in a graveyard. Christ was raised from the dead. I've seen tens of thousands of marriages raised from the dead. And I've seen them that have caved in and tossed in the towel. It's tragedy. Because when a marriage dies, it's not just two people. It's generations. Well, I'm curious, uh, one of the challenges I think we see is, or at least I see out there, is maybe we have too small a vision for marriage. We see it maybe as a relationship that's going to meet my needs, 
Uh, we want a, maybe a place we hope we can raise some kids who are well-adjusted. But I thought that's really an inadequate vision for marriage, that it's it's something more and giving, holding out a, a dynamic vision for marriage. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? And maybe what maybe we're missing in terms of presenting a God's vision for marriage and so forth. You're spot on. You're absolutely. In fact, uh, uh, this is how we, how we begin our weekend. Remember marriage getaway. And, and we come out of Genesis one, two, and three in the beginning. And, and let me just read what, what it says in Genesis one twenty six. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, that's the man and woman, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over livestock and all the earth and everything that creeps on the earth. Verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So Tom, what you just said, um, God created man in his own image, and then man returned the favor and created God in his image. And so what marriage has, has been dumbed down, it's not how the best-selling book in history begins. And by the way, side note, we can't get off on this now, but it's also in Revelation 21, how the book closes, the marriage feast of the groom, Jesus Christ, and the bride, the church. Marriage and family have always been central to what God's doing on planet Earth. And it's always been central to what the devil of hell is trying to destroy. Because he knows if he can break a man and a woman up in their marriage, he doesn't just break them up. He's breaking up generations on down on downstream. But I think we've lost the lofty dignity, um, the, the magnificence of what marriage was meant to be, even in its broken state of two very selfish. I'm a very selfish person. I I spent the first two years of, of our married life finding out how wretchedly selfish I was. Then we started having kids. And we had six kids in 10 years. And you know what they taught me? Even more about my selfishness. Marriage and family are redemptive. They teach us that we need God. You can't do either one without God, without Jesus Christ being the Lord. I've tried. Doesn't work. Things work best in the hands of those hands who created it. And so for 50 years now, Barbara and I have prayed together every day. Some nights, in fact, many nights, it's Lord, we're exhausted with this family that you blessed us with. Good night. Amen. <laughs> but um, we haven't missed maybe this many nights in 50 years. I'd say this, that spiritual discipline of praying together, I think has probably saved our marriage. I think we, even in the midst of teaching about marriage, could have lost our marriage. Because I, I see how people... And I've experienced it, how people set up war against each other. We get isolated and we know from 
physical war that nations face with each other is the way the enemy uh, breaks down soldiers. He gets them isolated. And in isolation and darkness, you can convince a man of anything. And I think that happens in a lot of marriages. We didn't get married to be at war. We got married to, to be at peace and enjoy each other. And yeah, uh, but but you get isolated and that's why you got to keep short accounts. That's why uh, Ephesians 4 verse 32 is, uh, is so important. It says, uh, this is 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, getting back at each other. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. So a marriage unit was meant to be a model of God's love for the world. God in Christ died for our sins. He defeated, God raised him from the dead. He gave us the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live the word of God, which gives us the blueprints. And uh, that's how two broken people, they have to practice the art of forgiveness because you're gonna hurt each other in a marriage relationship repeatedly. And both Barbara and I know this, that if we can turn to the other in bed or the next day over breakfast or later in the day, and, and I say to her, will you forgive me for when I said this or when I ignored you or when I was sharp with you? She knows that if she deals with that and gives, gives up the right to punish me and says, okay, I forgive you. Because that's what forgiveness is. It means we give up the right to punish the other person. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. God, the Father, gave up his right to punish us because he poured out his wrath on his son. And it's the most magnificent stories ever been told. And it's being told in marriage people who live out of Christian marriage, even as imperfect as we all are. It's a mirror of God's love to the world. In 1976, 77, I made this statement. I made it to a group of single people. I said, in the coming decades, I believe your marriage, should you decide to get married here at this conference, your marriage is going to be one of the greatest tools to introduce people to Christ because of how rare it's going to be. I mean, we get on planes and we're holding each other's hands and we're walking in, we're friends. I mean, you know, and, and people will ask us, you know, how long have you been married? It's 50 years. And I've had audiences break out in applause. Why? I think people want to see it. They want to believe it can work. And it did, and it can work, and it does work, but it, it's it's hard work. <laughs> and uh yeah, we're now watching some of our grandchildren get married. It's kind of interesting watch watch them grow up. It's a great privilege to watch them have to deal with their own stuff too. But be right along the sidelines cheering them on. That's great. Well, let's. Uh, I'd like to uh, distill down some of the, maybe the wisdom you've gained over the years, and I'd like to give you several hypothetical hypothetical situations and ask for your your wisdom and counsel. Um, 
uh, let's say you're at an airport and um, you just a young man comes up to you. He's starting, he recognizes you and he'd say, uh, you know, I'm starting to get serious about dating with the intention of getting married. And he asks you for some advice um, as he pursues a wife. Uh, what would you say to him in a couple minutes? Well, if I had my Bible there, I'd read him this. It's how Jesus closed his greatest sermon he ever gave, the Sermon on the Mount. And I'd say to that young man, who you are will determine how your marriage does. If you've settled the issue of ownership in your life, that Jesus Christ is the owner of your life and that you're surrendered to him, and you're marrying another person who's also trying to make that happen in her life. So listen to what it says here. And it's interesting. If, um, I'm probably going to take more than a couple of minutes because I just want to read this and notice that Jesus um, uh, in chapter 7 of, of uh, uh, Matthew, Jesus said this, everyone that then who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus speaking. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Our middle daughter, Rebecca, and her husband, Jake, were, were, were pregnant with their first child. Uh, she gave birth. They called us when she went into labor. There wasn't a phone call for some time, and Barbara and I began to be worried. It was the middle of the night. Finally, at, at 6 o'clock, the phone rang again and uh, said they'd rushed Molly, the, the, the little girl who was born, off to Children's Hospital in Denver. And we got on a plane and rushed out there, and uh, they said it's her heart. Well, it wasn't her heart. She had uh, what, what is called malformation of the vein of Galen which is a vein that runs from the heart to the brain to pump about 20% of the blood in the human body to the brain to allow it to grow and be nourished. Well, when little Molly was, was born, all of the blood in her body was going to the, to the brain and had done so since nine weeks in utero. And so she ba basically had no brain and she was born dying. And she lived seven days, some of the darkest, most difficult days I've ever spent because I was having to watch my daughter and son-in-law go through uh, the unspeakable, losing their first daughter. I wanted to trade places with her. But I watched my, my, my daughter and my son-in-law weather that storm. That's a hardball. That's some serious wind. That's some serious hail, tornadic, tornadic wind and rain beating against their house. But they didn't fall. Today, they're, they're married. They've been married for over uh, 15 years now, I guess. And um, they have five children, plus one in heaven.
and uh, their house didn't fall because it had been been built by two people who both were surrendered to Jesus Christ. When Barbara and I married in 1972, we both pulled out a sheet of paper and signed over the title deed of our lives to the Savior. She signed it, I signed it. And uh, we gave God whatever we thought was important in those days. And some of the things we wrote down on that sheet of paper are ridiculous to look at today. But nonetheless, we gave them all to him and said, we're yours, Lord. We want to be your couple. 20 years later, we ripped open those envelopes and looked at it. And it was absurd. The, the invaluable stuff, the worthless stuff that we gave God. But I'm convinced in our, in our safety deposit box are the most valuable pieces of paper we have because we settled the issue of ownership in our lives. So if that single man at the airport walked up to me, I'd say, settle the issue of ownership in your life today. Give your life to Jesus Christ and then start running to the finish line. And as you're running, look to your left and to your right. See who's running with you. And there may be a pretty cute young lady or a young lady who really uh, grabs your attention. That's who you want to get married to. Someone who knows what the right finish line is, is surrendered to Christ. That's the basis. And then when you get married, sign a marriage covenant. Sign it over. Make a pledge. Ask people to witness it. And don't settle for, uh, for breaking that vow ever. And never use the D word, by the way. If you ever use the D word, divorce apologize. And if your kids hear you say that, ask them to forgive you and then never say it again. There's been research done that says when you say something like, well, I'm just, you know, maybe divorce is better. That idea of speaking those words into a relationship can give life to the possibility of that. They create fear, which is proof. And, uh, we need more people who are pledging their marriage covenant uh, and forgiving each other when they're angry and uh, asking for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So uh, that young man at the airport, that's the way I'd say to start, go to, go to the Family Life Weekend to Remember. Go to familylife.com and check out the Weekend to Remember. And don't get married until you go to that. The, the young couple who uh, were married this past weekend is a nephew and a uh, young lady who we've grown to love already. Uh, that's what we gave them as a wedding gift, our conference. Go to the weekend, remember, and get those blueprints. So you got one single set of blueprints to build that relationship from. It'll still be difficult. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but it's a whole lot easier to build off one set of blueprints that have two different builders off of two different sets of blueprints using two different kinds of materials. Mm -hmm. Would you have the same counsel for a young woman who's? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of, of really godly young women who um, aren't being asked out on dates because of something I mentioned earlier. Guys are delaying they're really a day delaying adulthood. And singles have coined a word called adulting. I'm going to adult, adult I'm, a, I'm going to be adulting this weekend. Do some adult things. 
Well, marriage, as the great theologian, at least she was in my days growing up, Irma Bombeck, who was a columnist in the newspaper, said, marriage is God's last chance to grow up. <laughs> I really agree with that. After 50 years, you do a lot of growing up in 50 years of marriage. And it's, it's a great way to learn what real love is, too, by the way. What about a young couple? They come up to you. They've been married five, 10 years. They have a couple kids. Life's busy, challenges. What advice would you have them or encouragement? Well, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but um, I, I, would, uh, I would go to the weekend to remember um, at least every other year for about 10 years because it's going to take that repetitive teaching of going through that conference over and over again. And the cool thing about the weekend, remember, it's a fun, romantic weekend. You're not going to be, be preached down to. You're going to be called up to something noble that is very significant. Uh, it'll, it'll equip you at new levels because you, you change. Um, we change as we go through life. And so you'll hear different things from different speakers, and there'll be different speakers. We, got, uh, we have over 60 couples that do these conferences around the country and around the world. And so uh, it's the very best marriage insurance I can suggest that a couple invest in. You're going to get all kinds of stuff to, to, to uh, outfit your kitchen. What are you going to get to outfit your marriage, making that marriage work? The second thing I'd say is I would get a mentor. And if you don't know one to, to uh, call, Begin to pray together as a couple. Would you show us, Lord, a couple that we would have fun with, that we'd like to be more like them as we uh, grow grow older? I hope it's in your church. That that would be where I'd hope you find it. You, you want someone who's got some uh, significant spiritual maturity building into your life. But then I'd, I'd ask to meet with them for a year. And it becomes a one-year renewable term at that point. And if you like at the end of the year, sign up for another year. And after you've done two or three years with them, maybe move on because you may have had some kids by then. Uh, find someone to mentor you on parenting. There's tremendous need today for parenting with, with mentors. They're godly, older men and women who are ahead of you, a few laps in life who can... Uh, Again, come alongside you, not condemn you, but coach you on how do you do, how do you sleep through the night? Get a baby to sleep through the night so you can sleep through the night. What about discipline? How do you do that? How do you teach them to, to uh, know God? You take their little hands in yours and you're, you're using the Bible to instruct them about who God is and putting their hands in God's hands. It's a, it's a holy privilege that parents have. But you, I think you need mentors. We had all kinds of mentors in our lives. And I'm mentoring uh, five young men right now hmm. um, in their marriages and families. And Barbara and I just uh, a week ago spent some time with uh, uh, eight or nine couples who are in their 30s. And we had a delightful evening. And, and uh, we, uh, when we celebrate our 50th, uh, Tom, you hadn't asked to see this, but, but I'll show you something we created for our 50th. Here's what, as we begin to grow older, we realize that our children may, may know our story. 
Their spouses, to a much lesser degree, may know a little of our story. But our grandkids, you know, they're young. And even the ones who are 23, uh, they don't know one-tenth of one percent of our story. So on our 50th, last September 2nd, last fall, we got everybody together on a small little farm in a uh, town, I dare you to find it on the map, called Sparkman, Arkansas. We got our entire family there, and uh, we celebrated our 50th, and we gave each and every person a book. And the book is designed by Barbara, and it's called I, Our Story. And it's dedicated to our children and grandchildren. And the beginning of the book are all the chapters of our lives and how Barbara and I came to faith in Christ, how we met, how we got engaged. That's a show-stopping story right there. And then how we started out, how we started out our marriage and our mission, chapter seven. That's the first half of the book. Then the second half of the book is 50 lessons from 50 years of marriage. And uh, we thought, you know, what better way to teach what we've been teaching other people for decades, teach it to our grandchildren. And we, you know, I found this laying out in a gravel road after we'd given it to one of the grand, grandkids. I don't know who he was or who she was that dropped it out there, but I knew they wouldn't read it today. They're young, all the way from six months to... 23 years of age, but maybe someday, maybe someday, they may go, you know, wasn't it grandma and grandpa, Mimi and Papa, didn't they, didn't they teach about marriage and family? wonder what they taught. So Psalm 78 really commissions us to do just that. It says in verses five through eight, he established a testimony in Jacob. What's that? That's the story of your conversion, your story of how you met Christ. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. What's the law? The truth. It's uh, the principles on living, how to know God. And it says that purpose clause, he, he did those two things, established testimony and the truth of scripture so that Fathers could instruct, instruct and entrust them to their children and their children's children for future generation and not be like their grandfathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation who did not know God and did not obey him. And they wandered about in the desert. And um, I, I, think, I think passing on what we've been given is really, really important. And, and I know people want to give an inheritance to their kids' money. But I'm going to tell you something. I think the most important thing we pass on is a legacy of the reality of Jesus Christ ruling in our, in our lives day in and day out, not just for two hours on Sunday morning, but all week, 365 days a year. And to pass that legacy on, that value-driven life 
to the next generation. Uh, what greater privilege is there? We we just did something, Tom. Uh, but back before COVID, about five years ago, when we stepped out of leadership of family life, we're still working, by the way. We we, uh, we may have uh, stepped out of leadership of family life, but we're still working in these two ministries, uh, online ministries. Um, but we told all of our adult children, we want to take you and your spouse to Israel. And um, if you want to take children with you, you pay for them. We'll pay for you to go, but um, you pay for the children to go. And we had no idea whether it'd just be Barbara and me with nobody or one couple or two, but ended up with five adult children and their spouse. So there's three married couples and two spouses, five altogether. And we had 10 grandkids. We were together in a bus for 10 days in Israel. And we had a hoot. And the, and the, the grandchildren led devotions every, every day from different sites around Israel. Mimi and Papa only said a couple of things. We weren't there to become the teaching mommy and daddy that we had been with our kids, but we let our adult children do some of it sometimes, but the grandkids really carried the ball. And our Jewish guide, who's been guiding for three decades, we asked him at the end of the time what his favorite thing was about the trip. You know what he said? The devotions that your grandkids gave. <laughs> I loved it. You know, here's a Jewish messianic believer. He'd been, he's been with all kinds of groups, Swindoll's groups, David Jeremiah, you name them. But we took a group of 17 people on a bus and had a blast. Mm. One friend said, you can give them money or you can give them memories. And I would add, you can give them memories that are anchored in scripture. Doesn't get any better than that. Well, let me ask you a couple of follow-up questions. What about, what advice would you give to husbands? Two or three things they could do to be a better man and a better husband. Learn the art of dying to self. It is said of husbands, husbands are to live with their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He was crucified. He served. He didn't seek his rights. He didn't command the universe to change the, his death. He died on a cross on behalf of his bride, the church, us. And I think one of the greatest privileges a man has, it's, it's a tough duty. You can't get your way. You know, uh, I thought God gave us uh, six children uh, to teach them how to love and forgive. But it wasn't long into raising six kids that I realized that he was growing us up, not just our children getting grown up, but us. And so to the husband who wants to be the real leader, reject passivity, as my friend Robert Lewis says. Reject passivity. 
and embrace responsibility and uh, love courageously. Keep on loving her even when she doesn't love you. And uh, keep leading. Lead endlessly, sacrificially, as I've mentioned. And then as Robert Lewis concludes his, his statement about what men should do, expect a greater reward. I think there is a great reward for a man who does that. And think about Christ. Did he get a great reward because of what he did for the church? My goodness, a name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. So a husband needs to learn the art of dying to self, loving his wife, nourishing her. That means making sure she can grow spiritually as a woman, making sure she grows intellectually as a woman. Don't take advantage of her, nourish her. Cherish her is the other word used for what men should, uh, how they should treat their wives. Cherish means to, to value, means to love in such a way to make it soft. Love her heart so that it receives the, the scripture. And I'll tell you guys, guys who are listening, uh, I'll just challenge you tonight when you, when you uh, go to bed together as a couple, if you're married, grab your wife's hand and say, let's pray. I want tonight to be the first night for the rest of our lives. We're going to pray together every day, every night as a couple. And some nights we'll both pray. Many nights I'll pray, she'll pray. Uh, but, but just set up a spiritual discipline of inviting Almighty God, because He is there. All you got to do is look outside this time of year. Spring is the sign of a creator. Life out of death. It's beautiful out there. Beautiful day here. Blue skies, nice wind, fresh green. Uh, creation bespeaks of a creator. And I think God wants to show up in people's marriages because he created marriage, if we'll invite him into it. So that's a couple ideas for guys. What about, about wives? Um, follow their husbands. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention uh, the S word, which has almost become like a cuss word in our culture. Submit. You're not to be a lesser person in the marriage by submitting. Your, your opinion matters. You should be heard. Your husband should listen. But after you've, you've argued about something for a while, like Barbara and I did one time, we were trying to decide whether to put our, our middle daughter in level seven gymnastics. She was in level six. And the next level was going to mean she was going to be with her coach four nights a week for four hours. This was before all of the to-do about the sexual abuse that occurred in gymnastics. You just have to wonder now what perhaps did God protect our, our daughter from, but Barbara and I couldn't come to a decision on there. I felt extremely convicted that we needed to stop at, the, at level six and build into her life because she was 12 at the time, because the teenage years were coming. And I, I, I needed a relationship with my daughter to help her and aid her through the most perilous years I think a human being face, uh, 13 to 18, 13 to 20. Uh, and uh, we could not come to an agreement, Tom. 
and Barbara had her heels dug in and and I was doing my best to, to love her and convince her at the same time. And, to, and so Barbara had to ultimately decide, you know what? I don't like it, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to submit to my husband's leadership. And she did. And, you know, it was interesting after she did that, everything made sense and everything fell into place after that. And she goes, that's one of the best decisions we ever made with our kids. Now, I'd like to say every decision that I've led her in since then has been so mystically, magically wonderful. Not so. I've made some clunky decisions as a young man growing up. And I'd say to newly married couples, uh, wives, you got to be careful. You got to be uh, patient with your, your husband. It takes a while to help, help a man grow up and be the man he's supposed to be. I know uh, it's easy to compare your, your husband with your father. How many years did it take for your father to become who he was now that you're a young lady in your 20s, 30s? Uh, he's been at it for a while. Give your give your husband room to grow up and coach him and encourage him and don't nag him. And you know what nagging is, don't you? It's being nibbled to death by a duck. So uh, don't, don't nag your husband. Find a way to get through with him without nagging. I'd say one more thing to, to, to wives, too. I didn't get a chance to mention there. Uh, one of the most powerful things Barbara has done for me and her love for me, uh, even, even now, 50 years later, but starting out our marriage, she unequivocally believed in me. And uh, when I would speak, there was only one person in the audience that I knew would give me an honest answer about how I did. It was Barbara. And that's always, it's always who I wanted to talk to her afterwards. She wouldn't blow any smoke. She'd tell it like it is. She'd be gentle, but um, if I bombed, but um, wives, you cannot, you cannot imagine the power believing in your husband has. Most of us men look secure, solid, you know, just rock solid on a foundation. But, but you peel us back a, a layer or two and uh, lots of insecurity there. And every man needs a woman who can believe in him. And uh, preferably, that's his wife. Loyal, again, not, not being flattering to him, lying to him but uh, believing in him. And the last thing I'd say to uh, couples who are uh, watching and, and have uh, listened to me banter away here for the last nearly an hour, uh, your marriage has to be built to outlast your children. Your marriage has to be built to outlast your children. Yes, children are one of the great privileges God gives us as a married couple. But that's not the purpose, singular purpose of marriage. Reproduce a godly heritage, that's children. Yes, certainly. But other purposes uh, for marriage are to be image bearers. And, and a third purpose is to be on mission together. God's mission for you as a couple. And I just would encourage whether you've been married six months, six years, or 60, 
every couple listening to us ought to have another younger couple that you're speaking into in a, in a mentoring relationship. Maybe it's formalized, maybe it isn't, but get together with them, take them out to eat and buy their dinner and, and talk about lessons you've learned. Start there. And a bunch of the lessons in, in this book we gave our, our grandkids are from mistakes we made. Uh, that might be a great place to start. Start listing all the lessons you've learned as a married couple and then start asking God, give us some young couples we can pass those on to. Uh, I think we need more of the, the older couples in the church. I'm not, not talking about old couples. I'm talking about older couples who have been married five years, 10, 20, 30, uh, speaking and coaching the next generation because they need all the, all the help they can get. This is not an easy culture to do marriage and family in. It is, um, it is chewing up families that are trying to stand for what's right. May I, may I close our time in prayer and pray for uh, each person who's watching, Tom? Absolutely. Ah, Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, indeed, the whole earth is full of your glory. A billion galaxies out there, and yet a microscopic world of cells that contain the entire structure of the DNA, and then the individual people that you've made, and how you, Lord God, call two very different people, male and female, to come together in marriage to reflect you to a fallen planet, a planet that is desperate for hope, desperately needing to know God, but they don't know where to look. Use the, the, the single people who are watching this. I pray that we have made them hunger and thirst for knowing more about Jesus and following him. I pray for the newly married couples that uh, you would give them a, a, a great uh, three to five years as they build good disciplines in their marriage and family and all the other married couples listening to, this, listening to us. I pray that they would uh, take up the mantle of mentoring and mentor uh, at least one other couple in the coming year. Bless Tom and his ministry. Thank you for his uh, willingness to host uh, uh, others like me who are telling a story of your work in our lives. And uh, may his legacy be mighty with his family. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Dennis. Um, just as we close, for more information, uh, I saw that you have a great website, the therainies.org, R-A-I-N-E-Y-S, therainies.org. Uh, and you've got- And then Bar Barbara's got one too. Okay. It's called evervinehome.com. E-V-E-R-T-H-I-N-E, home.com. That's where she writes for the ladies. And together we're on therainies.org. Uh, people can sign up for subscriptions, get a daily devotional, then get 50 52 date nights on there. Uh, lots of good things for couples they can find on those uh, on both those websites. And I saw that you listed your top 25 uh, radio interviews, which is a great, great resource. It is a great resource. We, we did over 6,250. And so when I listed those 25, they're all number one. 
Okay. <laughs> it was impossible to rank them, which one was the best. But there's some great material. Uh, if you're looking for a way to kind of be mentored by somebody over the air, uh, listen to some of the guests we had. They're not they're not done by me, although I'm the host of the broadcast. Uh, but the people we uh, interviewed uh, are really great human beings and who have made their mark for Christ and their generation. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dennis. Thank you, Tom. God bless.